I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Align Podcast. And the great symbols of our culture are the rocket and the bulldozer. The rocket. You know, compensation for the sexually inadequate male. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to conquer space. You know, we're in space already, way out. If anybody cared to be sensitive and let what's outside space come to you, you can if your eyes are clear enough. Aided by telescopes, aided by uh, radio astronomy, aided by all the kind of sensitive instruments we can devise. We are as far out in space as we're ever going to get. But, you know, sensitivity isn't the pitch. In, in, especially in the WASP culture of the United States, we define manliness in terms of aggression. You see, because we are not, we're a little bit frightened as to whether we are really men. And so we put on this great show of being a tough guy. Uh, it's completely unnecessary. Uh, it, it, you know, if you have what it takes, you don't need to put on that show. You don't need to beat nature into submission. Why be hostile to nature? Because after all, you are a symptom of nature. We are all symptoms of nature. I like that a lot. Welcome back to the Lion Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and in today's beautiful episode, I got to chat with Dr. Stuart McGill. He has been on my bucket list of folks that I would absolutely be honored to have on the show. He is a professor of spine biomechanics at the University of Waterloo in Canada. And uh, likely, I'd say he is the most renowned spinal expert in the world, I reckon. Uh, Really fun conversation. We got into how to get more safe power out of your spine, out of your body. Got into concepts like the double pulse and the gate theory of pain and really understanding what the heck this pain thing is and how we are able to work with it in ourselves. And think of physical attractiveness and how you're attracted to a person who holds themselves well, displays confidence, is funny, cares about others. Um, all of these things are projected through their, through their body and you can tell when someone doesn't care and uh, when they're not confident. Thank you so much for tuning in. Por favor, tune into the website, A-L-I-G-N-Therapy.com. That's aligntherapy.com. On there, you will find hundreds of free videos on self-care and functional movement. You will find the self-care kit, which is a hollow foam roller with screw-on lids so you can fit what I fit inside there for y'all is two different myofascial release balls and then a heavy duty elastic band with the door anchor so you can adjust the height of that thing in the door. Decompress those joints, get your exercise on, get your move on, get your sweat on. Uh, quote that I got for y'all today is a quote probably a lot of people have heard already. It's from Mr. Nietzsche and uh, it's he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. 
That is an interesting question that I ponder upon quite often of what is the point of any of this crap that we do? What's the point of going to work? What's the point of staying healthy? What's the point of waking up each day? I think it is in our favor to really, really get in and parse out our days, our moments, our weeks, and, and really observe every aspect. And if you cannot definitively answer why you do what you do in any aspect of your day, I think it's time to maybe self-reflect and, and uh, maybe pull some, pull some parts of that of that. What kind of superfluous nonsense are we throwing into our day just to fill space? Why are you on Facebook? Thank you so much for reviews and uh, five stars, ideally, uh, on iTunes. That's greatly appreciated. And thank you for using the Amazon portal on the right sidebar of the blog and the podcast. A small portion of that goes into the Align Podcast pocketbook and helps support the show. Keep it free. Keep it live. Keep it fresh. Um, last thing really quick, uh, working on building my living room and in my new dwelling here. And uh, just the, the, the thought came up to me of the, the misnomer of a living room. Majority of living rooms that I've been into, I would consider them more to be vegetating rooms. And as a couch and a table and a freaking, well, that's about it. A bunch of couches, a TV and a table. It's not a living room. That is a sitting on your ass room. I would recommend that we start looking at our environment and our reality and recognize that we will form to that and we are formed to that. We already have formed to that. It is sticky, those places. And um, make it a living room. Bring life into that. Bring instruments. Bring art. Bring open space up. Get rid of that big stupid table that you put a candle and a freaking trophy from when you were in high school or something. I'm sure no one does that. Uh, thank you so much. Tuning in, here we go, the Dr. Stuart McGill Align Podcast. But I should say, and, and maybe you've heard this, people, uh, particularly on the internet, like to classify people, and I get classified as this strict biomechanist, and, and of course I, I spend very much effort on uh, the mechanics, but they think I ignore the psychological and, and the social and these kinds of things, which uh, uh, isn't true. But uh, nonetheless, there we are. Well, yeah, you know, so I, I spend a lot of time thinking about the psychological aspect of it. And it's I've come to understand that it's absolutely inseparable. You know, so when I go into and this could be argued, I'd love to I'd love to have the conversation, you know, but in order to take on the role of depression or excitement or pride or whatever it is, you could describe every one of those physiological states of mind. You could break them down from an anatomical perspective and say, oh, depression is medial rotation of the shoulder girdle and pronation and valgus knees and pronated feet. And like that is a position of depression, you know, and if you are practicing that, it will become more ingrained into you. Am I way off base or what do you, what do you think about that? Well, uh, one of the most convincing evidence sets there is if you were to go to a website by Professor Nico Troye, it's T-R-O-J-E, um, he's a professor at uh, Queen's University in uh, Canada, and he's actually built a website around movement patterns and uh, associates them with being uh, depressed or happy. Um, uh, uh, light or heavy, male or female, um, angry, 
Uh, anyway, he's shown the archetypical movement patterns and postures associated with each of these. And uh, it's, it's a very nice website because it's interactive. You slide the slider to the emotional state that oh. you want to view, either happy or, or sad. And when you see the um, anxious state, you see the shoulders elevate as trapezius contracts. When you see the relaxed person, the uh, posture aligns and falls. And, and this wasn't uh, just happenstance. So that's a very nice website for um, people to begin to read motion, but there's, I don't know if you know, I teach a first year course at the university on movement, so we get into a lot of these things. But just as an animal will, uh, say you were in Africa and you were a big cat and you were wondering which zebra you were going to make your lunch, you would probably look at its posture and its movement patterns and decide who was the weak element, just as a criminal um, would watch someone walk and it's you know they have various names for these things the perp walk and whatnot that uh, really make a person uh, uh, a victim or a target in, in simply by the way they carry their body and the way they express themselves and and all of those factors of motions of postures and 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 uh, the, the way the body is aligned very much determines tissue stress. So, uh, and, and, and is linked to pain and all the rest of it. So, anyway, there's a start on the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Some very nice um, academic evidence on these things. Yeah, and I saw maybe the same, same study or connection of studies of, of they actually took folks that were in, in jail and they had been robbing people, mugging people, and they showed them photos of individuals expressing various different postures and just say, like, who would you rob? You know, and the person you rob practically 100% of the time is the person that is already in a defeated, subservient position. The person that moves as though they might know how to take care of themselves or they're, they're proud or whatever it is. You don't really want to mess with that person. You know, it's the, you, you see it in sport every day as well. You can watch a posture change and you know when the person's defeated. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's it's the in the in the Bible. It's like Matthew something something. It's called the Matthew effect. Is uh, uh, well, I forget who called it that, but it's those who have will be given more, and those who have not will be taken away, even the little stuff that they already have. You know, it's, it's like the more that you develop this strength in your body, the more you start becoming an energy production machine. But as you start to have these little twists and turns and losses of energy via joints that aren't necessarily stacking or organized with each other, you end up dumping energy all over the floor and you end up being, you know, already defeated before you even start. Is that, am I crazy? What? <laughs> well, no, I, what's going through my mind listening to you is uh, in that first year movement course, every single student has to give a presentation, which is terrifying to them because they've just come out of high school. Right. And uh, what I want to teach them as well is the technique of presenting and being persuasive and to be confident and think of physical attractiveness mm -hmm. and how you're attracted to a person who holds themselves well, displays confidence, is funny, cares about others. Um, all of these things are projected through their, through their body and you can tell when someone doesn't care and uh, when they're not confident and uh, yeah, 
So uh, all, all of those things are, uh, as you say, to use your words, expressed through their, their body. But uh, in my world, uh, all of those things govern the uh, loading of uh, both active and passive tissues, the skeletal structures, etc. Yeah. And so I was just thinking about this on the way in, that our culture, our society, when you go look at someone in the gym or whatever, running and just, you know, just almost martyring ourselves for this image of fitness, we're not work-averse people. We're, we're, we're down to put in the work. The only thing is, is no matter what, you will be driving forward. You will be progressing either in pain and suffering or progress and support and integration. The problem that I see is that people don't have the sufficient education around how to really stack their blocks. And so we just keep doing what we, what we think we know, which is bicep curls, bench press, sit-ups, and, and, and jogging in some poor broken position. And then we just get worse and worse and worse, and we're working so hard for it. You know? Well. Where do we go? What do we do? <laughs> My answer there, if you've heard me speak before, is usually it depends. Um, there are certainly those whose approach to life is uh, through sheer hard work and, and willing their bodies to do things to the point that they break. And then there's the other uh, polar opposite of people who you will meet who are absolute movement sloths and they are movement adverse and they avoid movement. And uh, instead of taking charge, they do quite the opposite. They blame everyone else for their condition. They uh, want the doctor to give them some uh, magical solution for, for them shoving too much food into their mouth and sitting on the couch at night and then complaining about their, their d diseases of choice that they've brought among themselves and their joint pains and all the rest of it. I personally don't blame it on the people so much as more I blame it on the system that they're operating in. You know, it's like when you go out to buy cheese, it's like cheese is cheese is cheese, right? It's like, no, no, no. There's a drastic difference between a grass-fed, healthy, strong, smiling cow with a happy farmer and some industrial, gnarly, you know, evil cheese factory in New Jersey. You know, and so I think that we, we end up, as a consumer, we don't get a sufficient, it's, it's not easy being a consumer in the society. And I think the same thing's happening with movement, where we're doing everything that we can as a society to reduce, outsource our movement. And we think that that's like, you know, well, I got the new hot, you know, garage door opener or whatever. <laughs> Maybe that's not the best example. You know, but now I just press the button and I feel good because I fit into society more. You know what I'm saying? Do you think that, am I off the deep end here? Well, I see it every day when I watch the moms drop their kids off at school and I wonder what they're thinking. But uh, even in the small town that I live in, which is extremely safe, uh, I think if you asked a mom, why do you drive your kid to school? Well, they're concerned they're, uh, th that they wouldn't be a good parent if they kicked them out the door and walked. <laughs> uh, that would be right. beneficial thing they could do for them to start off their day, give them a, a good breakfast and get them moving to uh, sit at school. Yeah. You know, so I'm, I'm curious for, it's like, okay, the system is not completely against us, but it's, it's not the easiest system to be a healthy, robust organism in. So how do we start to make more, you know, become more autonomous and be able to make the, the right decision for ourselves that we can start building an integral structure 
You know, is there some thing, obvious things that you see missing in people's physical structures on a daily basis that's like, if you just did this? Well, not really, because uh, in my world, it's a bit more complicated than just doing this. Uh, I'm a, a back pain specialist, as you know, and uh, uh, I don't see the average back pain person. In order to see me, they have to have been to 10 different clinicians already, and uh, either they, they failed to get better or they got worse. So uh, they, I have the more challenging cases. And uh, I, I think you're aware that I, I wrote a book, Back Mechanic, mm -hmm. and in there I discuss the mechanisms of pain, and uh, very few of them have a quick fix. Um, it's usually a multi-factorial or a multi-dimensional approach. Um, and the first thing we do is uh, teach the person to perform a self-assessment of their pain triggers. So for the first time, it's pointed out to them quite precisely what are their pain triggers. Now, it might be the way that they're standing combined with their lack of walking or the way that they walk. Some people beat themselves into submission, as you've already pointed out, and others are sloths. So obviously the same approach wouldn't work for either one. Um, but once they're aware of their pain triggers, we then show them how to move in a way that doesn't trigger their pain. So that now um, winds down the whole pain sensitivity, but we do it through uh, usually adjusting their posture and their movements. To give a person more exercise, I'm sure you've been asked, oh, I've got back pain, what exercises should I do? And I think that's a common approach, but uh, we say, no, hold on a minute, adding more exercise to a poorly moving body is rarely the solution. That's why I'm getting them. They've already tried that and they failed. So we uh, get rid of the cause first, allow them to desensitize, then build a foundation in their body for pain-free movement and really add to the capacity to do work that is stopping stressing the sensitized tissues. And that's a little bit different for everyone as well. So uh, it isn't simply doing something or a quick fix. It's usually um, uh, a little bit of uh, posture and, and movement change. It might uh, be organizing their life a little bit more. Uh, I'll say, well, you know, walking is essential for back health. And they say, well, I walk uh, two miles every day. And I said, yes, but that's your problem. Um, you don't have the capacity right now to walk two miles pain-free. However, if we broke it up into three 15-minute chunks, you'd still cumulatively walk two miles throughout the day. But if we chunk it up into three tolerable shorter sessions, you've guaranteed success. Neither one on their own will break you into pain, but cumulatively, we've achieved the uh, two miles of, of pain-free walking. So these are all details of dosage and, and interval training that are different for everyone, and uh, it, it's really a matter of, of, of tuning it. Yeah. But uh, it isn't always easy for the difficult cases. Yeah. And in uh, your most recent book, Back Mechanic, which I just finished up, and I thought it was, it was great. I would suggest anyone checking it out, um, back pain or not. Uh, you, you, one of the, the, the um, theories, I guess you could say, you mentioned in there is the, what is it, the gate theory of pain, which essentially, in relation to what you're saying, it's flooding the nervous system with positive information, positive feedback, you know, as, a, as opposed to continuing to whack 
your thumb with that hammer over and over again before you become so sensitized by that information being, you know, walking with poor posture, whatever it may be. It's like giving yourself the time to kind of scab over and heal those nervous pathways that have been indicating fire, pain, right? Is that, is that something? Yeah, that, that's, that's often the common explanation, but there's more than that. The actual tissue, people say, oh, tissue damage doesn't exist. Uh, for the most part, it's more a neural uh, driver to the pain sensitivity, but it's actually both. Um, you know, if, if, to use your hitting your thumb with the hammer, there will be an actual bruising there and, and uh, uh, a physical sensitization of the actual tissue. Um, but take the loading away, take the hammer away, then allow it to uh, desensitize and then slowly add the movement piece. And that's where the gate theory comes in. The uh, all movement uh, is transduced by sensors in your body, joint force sensors, joint position sensors, joint, um, uh, let's see, force, pressure, length uh, would be another one. So as the person moves pain-free, all of that kinesthetic information is, is transmitted back to the brain, the gate theory being that there's no more room for pain to come through. But uh, I don't know if it is uh, that um, as as it is, it's it's also less pain signal coming from the original generator that has also been desensitized by removing the proverbial hammer, whether that's poor posture or the length of time they sit in front of the computer or the television. Or it may be, you know, you get the typical type A personality that says, oh, I have to go to the gym every day and do 45 minutes on the elliptical and then half an hour of spinning class. Um, otherwise, I'll go crazy. And I, uh, usually my response to, to shake them up a little bit and I say, well, good, you deserve your back pain. Mm. You just did everything you could to keep it as sensitive uh, as as uh, you have been, and and sometimes you know does that does that work? Would I say that to everybody? No, but I would say it something along those lines to the chronic exerciser. Yeah, yeah, and so as far as there's there's an argument whether posture is actually indicative of pain, which I'm. In the, in the end of the spectrum, I'm like, yes, it's got to be, you know, but then you look at various different, different studies in relation to like doing MRIs and x-rays and such and observing the spine, observing the knee, observing various joints and saying, wow, this is an obvious indicator that we could use some type of intervention here. This person has no pain. And then on the other end of the spectrum, the person that might be like hanging by a thread, you know, or, or you know, vice versa, the opposite side of that. You know, some people have pain and you look at their spine, it's like, it looks beautiful. Where is this coming from? Is it a dermatome? Is it a myotome? Like what? Well, there's quite think? a well, there's quite a simple explanation for that, and it has to do with the cascade of tissue damage. And it was really first described by, at least a, I know it, uh, in Bill Kirkaldi Willis's book. Uh, it's called Managing Low Back Pain, and he did a brilliant job of describing the cascade. So I'll give you an example. Let's take a spine that's been overloaded in compression and it might have a very minor uh, M-plate fracture in it. Most radiologists would miss that on, on an X-ray or an MR. Um, but then that compromises the nucleus 
to uh, pressurize and, and bear pressure. Um, when you are compromised in the ability to bear pressure in the disc and you have a little bit of an injury or damage, now nerves and uh, vascular tissues will, will do what we call sprouting. They sprout in there. Now all of a sudden it's sensitized. But in a healthy disc that would never happen because of the pressure is so high. Nothing can live inside a disc. It's this avascular structure. But as it loses its ability to bear uh, or to withstand uh, or to build up pressure, shall we say, it'll flatten a little bit and then it starts to press on uh, nerve roots and and, and then um, uh, a disc bulge might occur as, as the disc becomes a bit more sloppy and uh, uh, less turgid, as, as we say. Then more load is carried by the joints and in two or three years they've become... Uh, irritated themselves. So now backward bending or rotation to one side might suddenly become painful. In other words, it's, it's a cascade that continues. It, it, it doesn't heal like a broken leg. Um, once the disc is flattened it's fl or has lost height, it now changes the mechanics of the joint and it will change the, the, the pain sensitivity and, and migrate load from one structure to another. So the MR or the, the CT or the x-ray, it might look awful in uh, another five or six years, but the, the point is the joint has now gone into its final stabilization phase and it gristles, which means the movement is now going. So those little micro movements that are irritating nerve roots and causing pain um, two or three years previous have, have stiffened up. And, uh, I mean, you don't hear of 70- and 80-year-olds complaining about uh, joint instability as a source of back pain. The point is that all burned out. Now, their MRs and their CTs don't look very pretty. But this is the natural uh, cascade that, that, that occurs in uh, backs, and it's, it's different for the different types of tissue damage. But if we went end plate, disc, facet joint, there would be a typical cascade over three or four years. And the pain patterns would go from a, an episodic, very acute pattern through to a slower, grumpier back with less capacity until one that stiffens up a little bit. And they've got a bit of back stiffness, but all their pain is gone. So I might have just described three decades of a, of a, a normal cascade. But this is why... Um, we hear these rather, uh, I call them very junior discussions of people who say, well, the MR doesn't uh, correspond with their pain. Well, if they learned uh, natural history, the cascade of tissue damage and whatnot, it would then become quite clear to them. Mm. And so one of the biggest misconceptions that I see in the world is um, something that's true and also misconceived is, is a flexible spine is a healthy spine. You know, but, but what we miss with that is that we need to start with a foundation of integrity. And I think what we end up doing is we end up focusing on stretching, you know, the dirty word stretching and flexibility, while losing our foundation of can I actually maintain integral support through that movement. And it's just about getting bendy. You know, well, well, yes and no. Um, interestingly enough, uh, you can't have it both ways when it comes to uh, training and adapting a spine. So you can have a flexible spine. And if you don't take heavy loads, 
and you tend to have a slender spine, that helps a lot as well. So if you took a thin branch and you bent it back and forth, it, it wouldn't break. In fact, it, very little damage would occur with many, many thousands of cycles. But if you have a very thick spine, like say you're a middle linebacker for the Seattle Seahawks or someone like that, who by definition will have a thick, robust spine, they can't bend very much, just as you could bend a thicker stick. If you bent it a few degrees, it would shatter. So bigger spines are actually less resilient to, to bending movement. But if you have a slender spine and you're not going to take heavy load, you can have a lot of spine movement mobility and, and probably not too much grief in your life. However, if you happen to be a heavier boned person and if you're training at the gym with various weights and uh, your movement isn't seen and you're mixing up this idea of having a flexible spine with the ability to tolerate heavy load, now you're in trouble. Because when you look at the polar opposite, uh, let's take a power lifter, someone who does heavy deadlifting of weights from the floor and squats and whatnot. These grand old men and women who've adapted their spines over the years can't even tie their shoes. That's why they wear slip-on shoes. So they've adapted this stiffness, which allows them to bear very heavy loads, and it allows the collagen to be stiff, and it won't delaminate, versus mixing the two philosophies up. So, you know, you, you can train uh, spine mobility and spine stability and load bearing, but you can't do it in the same person. So th this is where I think people mix up their, their training philosophies, and they mismatch it to their body type as well. So you would would you recommend would you not recommend something like like yoga to a linebacker? Uh, of course not. You've just created the perfect storm. Okay. So can you describe like what what's the cascade of potential stormy effects of that? Yeah, well we we've, we've measured these things in the laboratory. The thicker the spine, the the, the faster it will herniate. Yeah, and uh, they, the bigger, thicker spines also, they're not, if you take a bird's eye view through the spine or you, you were to slice it through transversely like this, the, the thinner boned people tend to have more ovoid discs. The heavier uh, spines are shaped more like a limacon or like a lima bean like that. So if they bend over and over and over again, the limacon uh, apex here directs a very focal disc bulge posterior laterally and uh, um, well all I can say is that they they will stress and uh, delaminate sooner than a thinner spine so if you find someone who can do 2,000 sit-ups and you can find them on YouTube I'm very proud that they can do 2,000 sit-ups. That's, that's fine, but you'll find most of them have slender spines. They're small people with slender spines. Okay. But uh, it's very difficult, unless you are touched by the hand of God, to also have the ability to bear very heavy load. And there will be those, those very rare people, but the average person will succumb either way. So when I said earlier, um, it, it helps to match a training regimen or a physical exposure to a certain body type. Mm. You know, you can't train a St. Bernard uh, the way you would a Greyhound and expect it to do well at the Greyhound track. It's just not going to happen. And uh, I think we, we need to recognize that in, in people as well. So if uh, you, you're a bit more slender and you don't want to lift really heavily, um, yoga may not 
be as, as, as much a concern. But then again, the neurology really matters as well. Um, if I see a person in the exam room and I'm just getting some uh, background data from them and I see them sitting in the chair and they're self-manipulating and they're pulling their neck and cracking and all this kind of stuff, that usually reveals that their motor or, or kinesthetic system, proprioceptive system, gives very high priority to the stretch reflex. Whereas if I do yoga, I feel as though someone's just doing jujitsu on me. I'd rather go in the octagon and have a, have, have a good roll with somebody. So, um, do, do you see how even it depends on the person's neural system as well? Yeah. So I, I do not like end range mobility. The normal the normal response and the the function of the stretch reflex is to make the person aware they're in a compromised position and to move their joint into a safer, more neutral zone. Whereas there are some who get a lot of um, uh, a perceived benefit from going to end range and they love to be there they love to stretch and, and their body somehow perceives that stretch reflex is something good so do you see how once again you gauge that in the assessment and you'll know why some people insist on stretching when they have clearly highly unstable painful joints and when you show them here's a bracing strategy let's repeat that load oh my pain is gone now well no kidding you just braced it with, with a, a, a muscle pattern an example I could give you there you might ask someone in an exam just stand go up on your toes and bounce onto your heels leave your your uh, muscle activity very flaccid and, and inactive and they might say oh yes I just got raped beating down my leg then you might say oh okay well now stiffen push my fingers out you know 10 percent effort uh push push my fingers out with your obliques and they'll repeat the heel bump like this and they'll say oh my pain is gone so you've just shown them that you've stiffened out the uh pain triggers with that particular movement or they might give you the opposite reaction and say, you know, that increased my pain, which would indicate their spine doesn't have the compressive load-bearing ability yet to use that particular bracing strategy as a, as a, a, a prophylactic approach. So you're going to have to come up with an alternate. But do you see how it always depends? And it's not until you assess, and, and uh, I often use the uh, analogy of some clinicians play a symphony so they follow the score and they play the orchestra and they run the same exam on every patient they fill out the forms etc but others play jazz which is what i try and teach my students to do so they find a pain trigger and then they play with it um, they play with changing stiffness uh uh, changing co-contraction, changing joint position, uh, changing neural tension perhaps, and find where the symptoms increase and decrease so you know how to push a patient away from their pain triggers. Mm. And so for folks at, at home that maybe want to self-diagnose or work with themselves and kind of try to try to hunt down their pain or play jazz with themselves. Is there any kind of rhyme or reason to how people can get started with that? 
Yeah, well, that's the whole purpose of back mechanic. It's to really empower the person to, uh, I guide them through a self-assessment of their pain triggers. Now, is it as robust as what they would get if they, you know, my, my big book that I wrote for clinicians, Low Back Disorders, it has quite a large uh, assessment chapter in it. But I pulled out things that a person could do on themselves. So an example there might be they could sit in a chair pull up on the seat pan of the chair to compress their back and then I would have them slouch and do the same thing. If that changes their pain sensitivity, it just points out to them immediately that posture changed their pain sensitivity. So they're starting to be directed now as to what postures uh, make them robust and what postures make them painful. And based on those categories of pain triggers, we're then able to show them what to do and what not to do. So it's, it's very empowering uh, for the individual rather than to go to their doc and say, well, here are some painkillers for your pain and go to Pilates class. Or um, they might be told, look, it's in your head. Don't worry about it. Keep moving and you'll be fine. I, I just am, am, I think it's shoddy medical practice. Mm. Show the person their pain trigger. Everybody's different. And, uh, you know, some people, the pain may very well be in their head, but it's a very rare, very rare person yeah. who uh, that, that truly is. It's almost always you can find a, an adjusted posture or an adjusted movement pattern and their pain will get either better or worse. Mm. And if it doesn't get better or worse, that's a red flag. Something serious is going on. They might have a metastasized tumor or an infection or something else that isn't driven by posture or, or, or a movement. And uh, that very much would be a red flag for us. There's something sinister underneath. Huh. And something along, along with that, along, you know, with, it's like when we say move functionally, or, you know, have good posture, it's like... Those are just words that don't have meaning to almost anybody, you know, or they have meaning, but it might not be accurate with that. And one of the things that you that you mentioned that I, I love is is bringing uh, proximal support in order to create distal athleticism, distal mobility, distal articulation. You know, proximal being axial core midsection. If you can ground that and find really good support from that, kind of like you're playing. Uh, What's that? Tetherball. You know, you have the strong post, and then you can swing that ball around the post. But most of us, again, we, we're thinking maybe, oh, I want to be really mobile in my midsection. And then we lose a lot of potential grounded power for our distal parts. Is that... Well, the, that right? you know, I don't think anyone would argue on Earth anyway that Newton's three laws of motion governs the, the how how bodies move. Now I know we're not down at the molecular level here and and uh, quantum theory, but most of the time Newton's rules uh, govern uh, you know how things move uh, on Earth. Well, there are laws that govern. Uh, movement and govern joint stress and you've, you've hit one proximal stiffness for distal mobility the point being you can't fire a cannon out of a canoe and you may have heard that one before so if I want to throw a ball or here I'll just give you an example since this is visual I'm going to create a push a pushing force like this well if I use my pec major muscle and uh, here we'll just pull this light over so now you can see it if I use my pec major muscle and I push that light 
pec major crosses my shoulder, it creates arm flexion to allow me to push on the distal connection, but on the proximal side, it bends my rib cage. Right. So if I push just using that muscle across the joint, like a bodybuilder, isolationist approach, it doesn't create much of an effective push at all. But if I stiffen down proximally, 100% of that muscle activity is directed distally. So it's how we run quickly, cut, change direction, punch, kick, push, open doors, etc. So that is a, a universal rule and uh, even a backhoe if you know that heavy equipment for digging. Um, it, it puts out stabilizers, or the, the guy operating it does, puts out stabilizers which creates a wide base of support, holds the middle of the uh, backhoe stiff and stable and it allows if if you've ever operated a backhoe you know this is the elbow this is the wrist and it's exactly the same uh, <laughs> digging mechanism but if you don't put out your stabilizers on the ground the whole uh, backhoe is unable to dig and, and pull a tree root and that kind of thing so that's one rule um, uh, another rule uh, oh uh, joint stress, and in your line of work, you will appreciate this, and it's based on what's called elastic equilibrium. So if you take my elbow, for example, um, my joint falls into elastic equilibrium. Let's say it's right about there. That's the least stressed position. So if I extend, I create flexor stress, and if I flex, I create extensor stress. So it's where all of those stresses become neutral. There's the least stressed position for the joint. So so you can stack your body vertically, that pretty much aligns it into elastic equilibrium. So now, you know, I might stand up and I'll have a patient just palpate their erector spinae. If they bend forward, the erectors are active, but if they pull their hips through and align their, their body over their hips, those erector spinae shut right down. So immediately they've got a feedback on whether they're stacked and relaxed or not. Now, if I was to poke my chin, my erectors become active, crushing my back. If I align my head over that, the erectors shut off. If I slouch my shoulders, the erectors come on. So there's a very quick demonstration on how the rest of the body has to bear a compressive cost for someone who wants to chin poke or read their blueberry or blackberry or whatever those devices are called. So, you know, there are all, these are universal laws of, of an articulated linkage, um, and uh, those who choose to violate them will uh, succumb. And I know you see lots in your practice every day. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, but I think one of the, the issues with is, you know, I was talking to, to Kelly Start about this, is that we don't have enough pressure on our bodies from gravity to really, it's not enough stimulus to really know until you're in pain. But then you readjust that and you're like, this is correct, right? It's like, well, I don't know if you really actually got to the core root of things, you know, so having some type of objective feedback, such as maybe swinging a kick at a punching bag, swinging at a baseball, picking up, you know, a rock and putting it on your shoulder, like by having that feedback stimulus, then we actually have a little bit of information that we can, we can feed on. Does that, does that make sense? Do you have any kind of like suggestions along with that? Uh, well, yes and no. Um... We've measured in uh, firefighters, actually, um, 
when we measure a person move and they might be doing a firefighting task or they might be doing just a category of movement like a push or a pull or a squat or a lunge and some of them don't move very well so a guy like Kelly would say well they don't have much movement competency um, uh, now Gray Cook might say well never load dysfunction yeah. always deal with the dysfunction but when we measured the firefighters 30% of them increased their movement competency. They cleaned up. They got better when we added load. So, you know, it comes right back to this. Those kinds of rules that we hear aren't always uh, fast and true. That falls into it depends category. So on one hand, you might say some people do better by loading them. They, they, they stack themselves. They move better. And others fall apart. Uh, in fact, we would say 70% of the firefighters were falling apart when we loaded them. And the same thing happened with speed. When we added speed to the load, you used a, a baseball swing as an example. Um, if they were to do it slowly, they would have a poor movement pattern, but the efficiency takes over with speed. Um, again, it was the same ratio. 30% got better with speed and 70% got worse. So anyway, there's a little bit of evidence yet again to say that we're, we're all different um, in, in, in terms of how we respond to these things. And it's up to the clinician to be savvy and aware and figure out who needs load or who will fall apart under load. Who needs a bit of speed and who will fall apart. And, uh, uh, you know, it, uh, I, I guess, so, you know, both Kelly and great are 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 right and and I'm sure both of them would admit that it's not uh, for everyone yeah. but uh, anyway there's a general discussion on on that topic with a little bit of evidence I suppose sure yeah and I think it's it's always the, the answer for everything in relation to the body or the mind is, is always it depends you know it depends on the system That's that we're working with right? yeah. you know yeah it, it's it's absolutely true people ask uh, daily you know, what about this or what, what about that? What's your opinion on this? And I say, well, you know, it's, it's just going to be who, who's the patient in front of us today? Sure. And we will converge on their unique solution and it will be different for the person tomorrow. And that's, I think, truly the indicator of a really tactful practitioner, you know, is someone that is able to immediately test something, say, well, that's not working, stop doing it. <laughs> you know, move on to the next thing. Test, that's not working, move on. You know, but when all you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and you keep on driving in that direction, and that's metaphoric for you know every aspect of, of life in general. Uh, if you have anything to say about that, I'd, I'd love to hear. But the one thing that I wanted to mention before we before we um, let you go is the double pulse with uh, creating compression in your midsection, creating you know being able to fire a really strong integrated blow with your hand and your foot or what have you, and being able to integrate and connect that down through your whole body into the ground. Because you know, something that I see is when people move, even just something as simple as walking, they have these energetic breaks at their knee or their what have you, and then all the power goes away. Can we kind of, kind of guide people on how to get interested in creating power in their body? Yeah, it uh, comes from several principles. Uh, one is a neurological one, and that is that the best athletes are really strength pulsers. They're very good at 
creating pulse pulses because when a muscle contracts, it does two things. We all agree that it creates a force, but not too many people discuss that it also creates stiffness. So if I tried to to punch with, with full force, I couldn't move because the muscle would lock down if in the joint. So in order to be quick, you have to release, boom, to release very quickly and to sprint fast, to hit a long golf ball, to punch hard. Um, and we've measured all these in, in elite people. Um, they are very good pulsers and then relaxers. So, uh, but um, if, if we, I'll just bring my light back into the uh, viewing area here. If I wanted to hit that, uh, if, if that was worth hitting and I wanted to deliver maximum force, if I was quick and then I just hit it with speed, it wouldn't create much of a uh, what's called an impulse force over time. But you create a double pulse in that you create a pulse first, boom, because you, you can't fire out of a canoe. So you've got to create a hunk of cement to get the movement going from and transmit that down into the ground. Then you must very quickly relax and release. But as the, fo uh, the, the, the fist would hit the target here, the great ones use a second pulse and this is called creating effective mass. So essentially they turn their body to stone. So any of your athletes will, will, will know that there was, say an American football player, when you talk to the old pros and you say, who did you really hate or fear playing against? And a lot of them say, well, you know, we hated playing against Jack Tatum. He was a little defensive halfback for the um, uh, Oakland Raiders, and he was—he wasn't a big guy, but when he hit you, it was being hit by stone, and so he had this pulsing ability where he could be very quick and relaxed. But the second that he hit the opponent, he turned his body to stone and just went right through them, and it didn't matter how big the person was he was hitting. Well, the great athletes have the, this ability, or the great baseball hitters, or we've even measured it in the great golfers, um, certainly in, in the great martial artists. It's not the guys with the big muscles who hit the hardest. It's the uh, more modest-looking guys who have this neurology and the ability to pulse yeah. and, and, and creating what we call effective mass or their body to stone. So you see it throughout many different uh, impact and speed uh, power uh, athletics. You don't see it in powerlifting, for example, because it's too slow. But uh, anything where speed is uh, required and impact, um, the greatest athletes will have that very special neurology. So I think that's what you're, you're describing there. But we've, as far as I know, been the only people to really document that in a variety of sports. You know, and it's like if you're trying to learn to play a song on the piano, it's not about the keys you hit. It's about the keys you don't hit. You know, and it's like anybody can just come in and say, Brow! you know, hit every key. You know, and that's a person that doesn't have a very sophisticated neurology that they don't know how to relax enough that they're able to create a real whip and then turn to stone upon impact. You know, right. And a big portion of that is, you know, I, I know you know the Valsalva maneuver and like creating that compression upon, you know, if you're picking a heavy up load up or if you're trying to fire a blow or whatever it may be. You know, so that compression piece, that it's timing. You know, and that's the thing that we're not training in gyms. We're literally reducing our systems down and then expecting to go play sport. But we weren't working on timing. You know? Well, I think we do. <laughs> we work on it a lot. 
Um, but you know, when you hear uh, very good tennis players and they grunt when they yeah. when they when they when they serve, we very much teach them those power breathing strategies because the more the grunt, <laughs> it creates what's called an active expiration. So it super drives the intercostals and the oblique muscles to be even stiffer. So they get even more miles an hour distal to the shoulder joint for uh, a faster tennis serve, for example. So, yeah, power breathing is uh, essential for uh, high performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that, and that goes along with, like you're saying, the, the firing a cannon out of a canoe. Most people, again, in like standard gyms, are building up their cannons, building up these big, dumb muscles, and not integrating it back to that core system, creating that, that, that uh, distal or uh, proximal support you're talking about. And then we're just, we're just, big mud cement movers and it's just it's sad to look at anyway what do well, <laughs> you have anything to add to that or uh, well I, I don't know the bodybuilders i mean that that's that's their sport but uh they they they, they certainly wouldn't be categorized as skillful movers but you can there's a guy juji mufu who's he's like big on on youtube that he is completely into bodybuilding and right. he moves really really right. skillfully like we can yeah, do real, obviously a real exception for yeah. sure yeah. yeah those ones that we're talking about there's always the ones that are touched by the hand of god yeah you're right it's not the average yeah so how do people find more about you and find find the book and and all that i, I so greatly appreciate your work it's been paramount in my development so thanks man appreciate it <laughs> well you're welcome for that that's why we do it um well my latest book was written for the lay public with back pain it's called back mechanic and uh if they go to our website backfit pro just as it sounds backfit pro all one word dot com uh they can see that book together with uh, a couple of other things that may uh help them um the book is also on amazon if they want to read the reviews and and that sort of thing cool. awesome well thank you so much it was, it was a pleasure to chat with you, and um, I'm looking forward to anything you bring out in the future as well, man. Thank you. Yeah, well, you're, you're very welcome, Aaron. Thanks for all that you do. Awesome, man. Align Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I greatly appreciate your comments and your shares in iTunes. They determine the ranking and the visibility of the show, and they make me smile. So I look forward to reading those guys. Be sure to check out the website, aligntherapy.com. That's A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you can find my blog. You can find this podcast, more information about the topics and the, and the uh, guests that we've had on the show. You can find hundreds of absolutely free instructional videos on self-care, functional movement, how to get strong, how to get fast, how to get exactly what you want out of your body as well. Be sure to check out the self-care kit where it is as small enough to fit underneath the seat in your car. And it's like a physical therapist, a massage therapist, all wrapped up into one package. I know you guys are going to love the website. I know you guys are going to get a lot of value out of it. And I look forward to hearing your comments. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening, and remember to join the movement by subscribing to the podcast. If the information has been helpful, please share and leave your comments in iTunes. Aaron personally reads each one, and it makes all the work worthwhile. Together, we will make a difference and continue to bring more powerful and inspiring messages to the world. Align Podcast.